And welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 36. Today, we're going to take a tour down a different lane. We're going to look into the world of neurodevelopment and specifically the neurodevelopmental outcomes after certain children with immune dysregulation have issues related to neurologic biological function after infections. We're going to be speaking with a specialist in this field. Her name is Dr. Nancy O'Hara. Dr. O'Hara graduated from Bryn Mawr College before going on to get her medical degree at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. She earned her master's degree in public health from the University of Pittsburgh and then completed a residency and chief residency in general pediatric fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. O'Hara and I met years ago after I had completed my fellowship in integrative medicine, and I was in search of places to learn more about autism spectrum disorder and other neurobiological disorders like pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disease associated with streptococcus, a very full name, but otherwise we call PANDAS. And we're going to get into a lot of this information today, but suffice it to say that when I went to some of these conferences, Dr. O'Hara was one of the key speakers, along with Dr. Susan Suido, Dr. Elizabeth Mumper, and more. And she was instrumental in helping me understand some of the upstream targets and triggers that were driving these disorders in children. And we started to notice that this was something that was occurring in our clinic on a not infrequent basis. We would see children come in with thunderclap onset of OCD, anxiety, uh, depression, and tics, motor tics, vocal tics, things that were not there the day before. And oh, by the way, it turns out that they've been triggered by an infection. And there's a lot more to this, and we'll get into this in this conversation. But suffice it to say again that Dr. O'Hara is one of the leading experts in this space in the United States. She runs a pediatric medical clinic in Fairfield, Connecticut, that is functional medicine-based, and treats many different disorders, including uh, pans and pandas, uh, Lyme disease, which is a hotbed problem up there in the Northeast, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, and other developmental of neurologic disorders. She also treats gastrointestinal disorders, chronic and recurrent infections, food interactions, including allergies and sensitivities, chronic fatigue syndrome, metabolic disorders, mitochondrial dysfunction, and chronic fatigue syndrome, to say a few of the list that's long. After 30 years of practicing medicine, for children, and in the last 13 plus years, focusing specifically around the world of pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndrome, Dr. O'Hara has written and recently published a book. It is entitled Demystifying Pans and Pandas, a functional medicine desktop reference on basal ganglia encephalitis. You can find this book on Amazon. And I highly encourage, especially the clinicians, to look at this book because this is the A to Z on how to deal with this very difficult disorder. This interview is chock full of difficult terms that we try and flush out throughout the topic as discussed, right? So basal ganglia encephalitis, which means inflammation of the brain in this region called the basal ganglia. You'll hear words like pediatric abrupt onset neuropsychiatric syndrome or pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndrome associated with streptococcus. There are very many ways of saying the same thing. The brain is functioning, ab- functioning abnormally 
post-infectious disease, but there's a lot of upstream issues that we're going to get into that's really important that lays the framework for why these disorders happen in the first place. And Dr. O'Hare does an amazing job of going through this exceedingly difficult topic piece by piece, so much so that at the end, we have sort of a primer of how to take care of these patients in the clinic. And so for the parents listening, there are incredible pearls to be found here, and there will be some pieces that may fly a little high, uh, but there are many parents who are highly educated on this topic, so it may not. But the clinicians definitely need to get the bit-by-bit, piece-by-piece attack uh, recommendations for how to deal with this disorder. So it's a long one, but an amazing one. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Nancy O'Hara. And if you like this conversation, please feel free to rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts because when the ratings come up, I get an idea of if I'm on the right track. And so the more ratings, the better. One positive or negative rating really isn't a great end to utilize to make decisions. But if there's many, I can start to see, based on aggregated data, which direction to go. So with no further ado, here is Dr. Nancy O'Hara. Well, hello, Nancy O'Hara, and I am so grateful to have you on the show. This has been a long time in the coming to discuss one of the most important topics in my mind right now happening in in children's health. So welcome. Thank you, Chris. And thanks so much for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, normally, you know, I start these conversations with a piece from a passage of an article or something that really piques my interest on the person that I'm interviewing or the topic of, of, of substance. But today, I really think you come from a different viewpoint on this being the clinician who's seeing the the lives of these lovely children get disrupted terribly by these infection-related disorders. And so I would love it if you would start by sort of giving us an idea of what this looks like from the perspective of the clinician. What do these children present like? How do they develop these problems? Is it overnight, the whole nine yards? So take it off. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I started my career in function in pediatrics 30 years ago and in functional medicine about 25 years ago. And about 15 years ago, a young man very close to me presented with an abrupt onset of seizure-like tics. He was sitting, reading, and the next minute on the floor looking like he had a seizure. And that was shortly after a strep throat He got bit by a Lyme positive tick and got a viral infection. And that was my introduction to pans and pandas. And because I was in functional medicine, because I understood the root causes, I threw the kitchen sink at him. Um, And certainly we ruled out other things. It looked like seizures. So we did a 24 hour EEG, you know, a CT, uh, an MRI, actually all kinds of blood tests. And as per usual with these children, this is a clinical diagnosis and everything else was negative. And we started him on antibiotics for uh, the Lyme and the strep. Um, We put him on um, functional medicine interventions like magnesium um, and N-acetylcysteine for the tics. Um, got him into therapy, one of my favorites, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and started something that you know well, uh, Hellman therapy um, on this particular kid, because one of his fears that had developed was an immense fear of needles. 
And so doing IVIG was just the worst thing in the world to him. Plus his family couldn't get it approved. And, and we did the immunotherapy, the antimicrobial therapy, the symptom treatment. And within three months, he was better. However, seven years later, he came out with a rash that was actually a Bartonella rash. And I had missed the Bartonella all those years ago. And this young man, after we treated him for three months, the ticks totally went away, but he was left with a little bit of a 504 program. And we thought that was just him. Um, and uh, when we treated the Bartonella then fully, um, all the ticks came raging back. But once that got better, the 504 went away. He's now getting his PhD. Um, but there were lots of little things along the way, which happens with so many of these children. And he, like many kids with autism before him and many children with pans and pandas after him are my greatest teachers. Um, yeah. I can read all the articles. I can talk to all the other experts and be on all the boards, but it's the end of one, the child in front of me that that teaches me the most. And and truly, that's why I wrote the book. I mean, COVID hit and I had been thinking about it for years and I thought, all right, I'm, I'm going to do this now. And three years later, finally did the last edits and the index and all the references and, and uh, you know, did that to hopefully help other practitioners and other families to get at this sooner and not not miss um anything in the process yeah because as clinicians very well know when you miss something in the beginning it's a lot harder to fix later on because the inflammation the downstream damage is so much harder to get instead of being upstream so we're going to break down some of those terms that some of the guests may not know n-acetylcysteine and bartonella cat scratch disease but you know fundamentally this child was neurotypical i'm guessing pre yes. pre illness went from just sitting there doing his regular thing to having these tick-like seizures that turned out not to be seizures, turned out but to be some neuroinflammatory response that then led to a long list of, of medical situations in his body that we can get into the details of in a little bit that led to a treatment course that took quite a while, but then reverted him back to what he would have been considered neurotypical. So in the, in the typical clinic, right, the allopathic clinic, like I was trained at Emory and UVA, these things were considered psychiatric. This child is a psychiatric problem. They are pushed into a space where the treatment is basically trying to decrease the symptoms of the disorder instead of finding the root cause. And this is the key to understanding. This is where I really wanted to talk to you so much about this, because I think this is the problem in society. Parents don't even know. Their yeah. child all of a sudden thunderclap onsets, obsessive compulsive disorder. And they're like, oh, it must be genetic. It's in my family. No folks, there's other things underneath this. Right. So that experiential side of your seeing the kid is what I wanted parents to hear. Now let's start talking about the actual disorders, pans, pandas, cans, the whole nine yards from yeah. the whole boy girl perspective, the mean age of onset, prepubertal. Talk about that because you have all of this data. And then I want you to get, get into the, the work of your book too. Yep. So, so first of all, this started um, with Sue Suido in the 1990s and she wrote the, the first papers 
1997 on PANDAS. And uh, that acronym stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Strep. And what she had found and others like her is that like Sydenham's Korea in rheumatic fever, which is where you get these big choreic movements, these uncontrolled involuntary movements because of the neurologic or brain manifestations or inflammation from rheumatic fever, a strep induced disease that can infect the heart, the joints, the, the skin, et cetera. But she found that this was happening in children um, after a strep infection. Um, what's interesting is going back to Sydenham's Korea, 75% at onset and 100% at recurrence also had OCD and tics and anxiety. Um, so PANDAS, by definition, was a pediatric disease, most likely between the ages of three and 13, um, that was defined then as tics and OCD um, that was of abrupt onset that was not from any other known cause. Uh, OCD of other causes, drug overdoses, medication overdoses, trauma, abuse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What happened, though, and, and I think if you would talk to Sue, she would say the same thing. We're on several boards together. And, and that acronym became kind of kitschy and it became controversial. And I think it was controversial for several reasons. One, possibly the name, because pandas are cute, but, you know, not something you <laughs> want to associate with this disease. Two, you know, when a child goes to a pediatrician like you and I, Oftentimes they may have an ear infection or a sinus infection and the throat may look eh, and we may not even do the strep culture because they're so ill and just put them on antibiotics um, and never associate the, the behavior that happens six weeks to three months later with that strep infection that occurred previously. And then they have the abrupt onset of these changes and nobody's thinking back to what happened six weeks ago. It's incredible to me how many parents come into our office and we have a 30 page questionnaire they have to fill out. And they say, you know, it wasn't until I actually had to fill this out that I realized six weeks before this started, he had a flu like illness or he had COVID, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, or a yep. strep infection or whatever. So after this initial acronym was was um, uh, first researched and talked about, and lots of research were done, there there are many many uh, proof of concept um, behind this. Um, it was also understood that other diseases could trigger an abrupt onset of symptoms, mycoplasma being chief among them, viruses, but then also metabolic triggers. I don't know if you remember least up east when we were spraying for West Nile virus, mm -hmm. that pesticide spraying, some children would get an abrupt onset of neuropsychiatric symptoms. COVID, as I mentioned, um, anesthesia in some children. And so in 2011, 30 researchers and clinicians got together to try to make this less controversial. And they made an all-encompassing name of PANS, which stood for and stands for Pediatric Abrupt Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. However, of the 30, three dissented and instead called it CANS, which stands for Childhood 
abrupt onset neuropsychiatric symptom. Um, and really, they're the same thing. Right. Um, and what the true definition of that is a clinical syndrome that is the sudden onset of what we call encephalitic like onset of obsessive compulsive symptoms, meaning that there's an abrupt onset of severe hoarding, hand washing, checking, looping thoughts, um, anxiety, um, et cetera, and or severe re eating restrictions. And in a in a very much an OCD fashion, you know, they'll only eat green foods or they'll only eat foods that they feel are not contaminated or they may not check on, uh, choke on or of a specific texture. And then two of other concurrent cognitive behavioral neurologic symptoms. And those are a list of anxiety separation anxiety, an 11 year old that that now won't go to school, won't separate from mom, won't even go to a different floor of the house. Emotional ability, I call that the zero to 60. They seem fine one minute and they're severely depressed the next. Irritability, aggression, rage, oppositional behaviors. Um, the fourth being behavioral regressions, developmental regressions, that nine-year-old that all of a sudden is back to watching Thomas the Tank Engine mm -hmm. videos or right. talking in baby talk or in the fetal position. Um, sudden deterioration in school performance, uh, like a sudden onset of ADD or ADHD. Right. Um, and then the tics. And the tics got took out of, taken out of that OCD because I think the it that became a little bit of a controversial um part but there's still a very important part of it but it's all part of the motor or sensory abnormalities so tics handwriting deterioration you have a child who has a sudden onset of this and all of a sudden they can't draw can't copy a a, a picture um can't stay within the lines um that's sine qua non um, for this disease. And then the last are somatic symptoms. So if you have one of these plus an abrupt onset of bedwetting or mm -hmm. urinary frequency, urgency, daytime wetting, or sleep symptoms, that anxiety going to sleep or specifically REM disinhibition, which is when you go to bed at one spot and you end up at the under end of the bed or the sheets and towels and blankets are all over the place. 85% um, of children will have REM disinhibition. 90% will have that handwriting deterioration. 70% will have um, tics. The ones that end up in the psychiatric hospitals are the ones that, that the 10% that present with an abrupt onset of psychosis. Right. And and those are the most severe. And and what's so important is that, you know, early diagnosis, early correct management, not just putting these kids on psychiatric medications is what really makes the most difference. Right. Um, and often I'm asked, OK, so, you know, hundreds of kids get strep. How come we don't see every kid coming in with 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 pandas? Well, it's about one in 200, even though in my office, it's like one in two in mm. the general population. It's about right. one in 200. And that's because of that old adage, genetics loads the gun, 
environment pulls the trigger. So there is definitely a genetic predisposition. Um, and then that environmental trigger, that infectious or metabolic trigger that sets off the, the cascade that I'm sure we'll talk about next. Perfect segue. All right. So knowing that this is where I think we need to go, because we need to get to the headwaters of disease again to understand the reason as to the why. Because again, in 1970, when I was born, this was an entity that was not common, right? They occurred. We, we you know, right. symptoms, Korea, all these things occurred. So we knew that these realities did exist, but the frequency was never to the level it's at now. So something dramatically has changed because genetics, the hard wiring has not changed. It's the epigenetic, the soft wiring, the exposome. What is the pathophysiology that we have changed dramatically? I know autoimmunity is what, 60, 70% familial allergy dysfunction. So clearly it's immune solvency. Speak to that side. Right. So I think you're absolutely right. And, and one little caveat I'd like to say before I say that is, you know, starting my career taking care of children with autism, we saw children with autism as our canaries. You know, and where I grew up in West Virginia, we sent canaries into the coal mine. If the canaries died, that meant the mine was too toxic for the miners. Right. And I think so many of our children today are those canaries that all of our environment, whether it be mold or, or you know, living indoors more without the plethora of the ecosystem we should all have within our guts, um, or being exposed to a multitude of infectious triggers, Lyme, COVID, and everything else, we have set our children up to be more susceptible to all these things. But what happens, let's take strep as the, as the, the, the gold standard here. So a healthy child is exposed to, to group A strep. And the body always should mount an immune response against the strep by producing antibodies. And those antibodies should attack the strep in the throat, for example, though up to 20% are in the, the gut. And so we should always be looking for anal strep also, but let's say it's in the throat. And so due to that unlucky combination of genetic susceptibility, the specific strain of group A strep and other factors, those antibodies against the strep instead attack the body in an autoimmune and specifically the basal ganglia, which is made up of the, the caudate and putamen and where muscle movements like the, the ticks originate. So repeated exposure, especially repeated exposures that are not treated or repeated exposures to other infectious triggers results in a production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, particularly Th17, Th1 lymphocytes, which as you know, and I'm sure your audience knows, are types of what white blood cells, types of the immune system. And these cytokines travel along the olfactory nerves. So think about getting a sinus infection or a cold with the, the strep infection. And these pro-inflammatory cytokines um, that help regulate the immune system and should be there, then cause microglial inflammation. And the microglia are what mediate the immune response in the central nervous system. And then more cytokines are released. And these cytokines prompt the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. Now in children specifically, that blood brain barrier is not fully formed. 
And people always ask, well, is this just in kids? Can adults get this? And I want to address that maybe later as we go through this, because that is a very important um, uh, piece of this. But the blood-brain barrier, as we get back to, to this model, is supposed to prevent you know, these cytokines and, and antibodies from entering the brain. So when it breaks down, these antibodies can more easily get past the blood-brain barrier and cause the inflammation in the brain, specifically the caudate putamen, and the basal ganglia. And then the, the antibodies, again, these antibodies to the strep bind to what's called cholinergic interneurons. Um, and those are the 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 signaling um, in the striatum in this basal ganglia that that make everything function. And this disruption in that signaling is what leads to the onset of symptoms. And so we see the ticks, we see the OCD, we see the anxiety. And what we have to do is not just treat those symptoms of OCD and ticks, although that is an important part. That's one of the, the three-pronged approach. We have to go back and treat the initial microbial insult, the, the strep in this case, and more specifically, treat the inflammation. And that's why we see when we do that, um, that that reduces or eliminates the, the antibodies that bind to the cholinergic interneurons and then allows things to go functioning properly, which again is why the sooner the treatment, the better. And there's so much research about this, you know, Pittenger, uh, Guila, Suido, Williams, Lechman, so many people from all over the country and all over the world has done tremendous research looking at all different parts of this, the treatment, the the antibodies in mouse models, in in children, the the brains of of unfortunately some children that have died. Uh, and again, very unfortunately, some by suicide. Um, but but it's important to look at these TH1 and TH17 pro-inflammatory um, molecules. And when kids are alive to look for them in the tonsils. And if a child undergoes a tonsil and adenoidectomy to specifically look at not just what germs are in there because what's on the surface may be different than what's in the core, but also to look for these cytokines to look at for, because if you have a child where you remove the tonsils for sleep apnea, for example, they're not going to have the inflammatory cytokines in their tonsils. But if you're removing it and that child has pandas, you will see those in the tonsils. Let's go a little deeper there into the weeds. For the parents, they probably won't understand this part, but I think the clinicians need to hear this. What specific cytokines? Are we talking about tumor necrosis factor alpha, IL-6, uh, TGF-beta? I know with IL-17 increases, TGF-beta is usually rising up big time there as well. What are you specifically testing to see that immune polarity switch in the wrong direction for the T-cells? Right. Um, one of the best well-studied is TH17 cytokines, both from a genetic standpoint, um, as well as from an inflammatory standpoint. But we will see in research, this is hard to get in the clinical pathologist, you know, tonsil, but tumor necrosis factor alpha. 
um, increases in in IL six um, and all types of Th one type cytokines that are that are producing the pro-inflammatory response. Yeah, and I tend to think of this, you know, when I uh, I did a deep dive in some of the immunology with Sam Yannick and really spent a lot of time looking at this, and it seems to me that the vast majority of Americans now, at least in in our country, tend to have a baseline Th two polarity which puts them in a position of having a very poor intracellular pathogen killing mechanism. So COVID showed this more than anything, I think, where the vast, the vast majority of people who run into the virus, you know, are that struggle have this phenotype that says, Hey, my natural killer cells and my TH1 cells, which are normally there to kill these pathogens is not functioning well. So the virus gets an upper hand quickly causes the inflammation, which then is driving the presentation of our own tissue to the immune system, setting off this cascade of autoimmunity, which we know is higher in COVID, post-COVID. And, and so I think to one of the nightmares of COVID being so many sick people, the benefit of COVID is science has taken a log step leap in understanding these disorders because it's happened so fast and so frequently, we couldn't turn a blind eye to it, which I think, again, has helped with the controversy, right? Because exactly. boy- all these people who said these black swan doesn't exist. Sorry, COVID just showed you that black swan in spades. Yep. So yeah, I think it's 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 very interesting. So let's now look at this again. So boys to girls is what? 2.6 to 1? 2.6 Give me to some one, of the, exactly. the straight stats on this. And then I want you to go to why adults aren't really triggered by this. Right. Um, so uh it is 2.6 to 1 boys to girls. And I always joke, you know, you guys are the weaker sex. So we are. that's what you'd expect, it, you know. It's um, true. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it's okay. Uh, 64% autoimmune um, history in the family, particularly first degree relatives. And that includes thyroiditis in moms, diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, um, but 64% with autoimmune disease. What's important to look at is also rheumatic fever. There is a greater predisposition, a greater proportion of children with grandparents, great aunts and uncles with a history of rheumatic fever. And I have some with even parents with rheumatic fever. Um, so there's a genetic, definitely a genetic predisposition. And there are candidate mutations in multiple genes, including the Shank 3 that's also implicated in, in autism, um, you know, PPM1D, PLCG2. There are multiple SNPs of genes and also HLA-B alleles that we right. see with other vasculitides. Um, Dr. Frankovich and others have looked at this, you know, some that we see in Bissette's um, uh, 58, 55, 32 are also um, abnormal in these kids. So, um, I, and what we see is not necessarily as we do in autism, a different uh, set of circumstances with the girls versus boys. I think often girls with autism are much worse than boys with autism. We don't see that in this case. Although there are more boys than girls, it's not that boys are worse or girls than worse. It's the it's the lack of treatment, um, the lack of appropriate diagnosis that that leads to the worsening of the the symptoms or the disease course. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, again, if we're going to look at this as a totality perspective, right, so we have these disorders that are 
hitting society in a higher volume. We have this predisposition, we have the genetic predispositions, which you at this point know um, if we did test for the HLE markers, we could know up front who is at risk for this, but we're not doing that yet. So we really can't on a population basis right now say, hey, you have HLE, B58, HLA, B13. And for the listeners who don't know what HLA, human leukocyte antigen, it is a fancy way of saying how the white blood cells presented protein structures to learn right from wrong, kill pathogens, all that stuff. But if you have a mutation in this genetics, that is a predisposition for autoimmune carriage or autoimmune disease. So let's take it again, a step higher up into the beginning of the river. If we have a population that we cannot pre-predict right now, who is at risk other than maybe, hey, your autoimmune family history is higher. Hey, you may have this allergic family history is higher, so you need to pay attention. What do we say on a population level? All right, you're Nancy O'Hara. You're the specialist in this space and you are giving a blanket statement to society. Here are the things that I would do to reduce your risk of developing autoimmunity, autoinflammation, and pans, cans, pandas, the whole nine yards. Right. And I think this is true for all autoimmune disease. And it starts with the gut. Right. Um, the gut is not the second brain. It's the first brain. And until we decrease the inflammation in our bodies, which first comes in the first thousand days of life, which right. is not from day one of birth, it's from preconception. Yes. And mom. Wait, hold on. Say it again. Say it again. That is so important, Nancy. Before we conceive, how long before we conceive? It's really three months. Thank you very much. I, I, I say a thousand days personally, but three months is beautiful. I love yep. it. All right. Sorry yep. to interrupt. Go ahead. Well, it's a thousand days total. But, you know, I, I think if mom started at least three months before they got pregnant, looking at what's their diet like, let's de everybody's asking what's the best diet. It's an anti-inflammatory diet. It's decreasing the inflammation. It's eating real food, which is right. one thing that we don't do anymore, whether right. it's GMO or or processed or whatever it is, we need to eat food, good proteins, good nuts, good oils, good vegetables, some fruits, you know, lower levels of sugar, well, sugars for sure, but carbs, particularly right. complex carbs, which right. is your your tubers like your potatoes, um, but especially all of your breads and pastas. And we can get into what's different in this country versus, you know, Italy, et cetera. Right. But it's so affected by the way we grow our grains, what pesticides we use, but especially all of the inflammation that we put into our guts. Yep. Then we have to look at the inflammation in our lifestyles. And we are such a stressed out world these days, um, always on our phones, always looking for the the quickest message, you know, what's the sound bite for this one? And, you know, you and I are not talking for five minutes. We could talk for five hours and not even Easy. touch the surface on all of this. Right. But but everybody wants their soundbite. And um, we have to learn how to go back to being in nature, being in the dirt, meditating, being at the water, being in the forest, you know, living life as it should be lived as I as I talk to you today from my RV, you know, <laughs> um, and, uh, I, you know, that's what we need to to 
teach our moms and our dads. And along those lines, then we need to look at what's gotten messed up. What, you know, what mineral deficiencies do you have? What vitamin deficiencies do you have? What antimicrobial overgrowth do you already have? I mean, as moms, we don't just pass on our genes. We also pass on our germs. And how are you delivering that baby? If you're delivering that baby by C-section because of an emergency or or some reason um, that's important for the mother to deliver the baby by C-section, then you need to have a perineal picnic, which means that you take the, the vaginal mucosa from the mom and have a picnic all over the baby. And if you haven't talked to Yehuda Schoenfeld yet, Chris, you you should try to get him on. Uh, He's an amazing autoimmunologist. And he tells this great story about he was supposed to do the perineal picnic on his daughter and forgot um, in the the emotion of the day. And uh, actually, his dog, Lolly, saved the day and licked all over the baby. (laughs) Um, And and my point in in saying that little aside is that we spend so much time, especially since COVID, keeping things clean, you know, not just wearing masks, but wiping down every surface and washing our hands. And it's not that hand washing and, and doing that isn't good, but we also have to allow ourselves, our immune systems to have some triggers. We can't live in a bubble. And that's why right now we're seeing so much RSV and flu, et cetera. And so we have to prepare our bodies as moms and dads. I don't want to leave dads out. You know, you got to get your zinc levels up. You've got to be healthy. You've got to support that healthy lifestyle, support that healthy gut. And then once the baby is born, continue that mostly through breastfeeding. Um, and continuing a healthy, healthy uh, diet during that time, and then allowing good foods in. My my partner, who's a naturopath, had a baby boy uh, about a year and a half ago, and her biggest accomplishment in the first year of life is that by the time he was one, he had had over a hundred foods. And I think we found now that we limit things so much for babies that that induces more autoimmune disease. The second thing is what's the first food most babies get? Carbs, rice, cereal, fruits, bananas, forget it. Let's give them avocado. Let's give them protein. Let's give them vegetables. Let's get those things in early on. And I think in that way, we'll decrease the allergic and autoimmune response. So now, okay, you're listening to this and your kid is three or your kid is 10 and you're scared to death and you've done all these things wrong. Is it too late? It is never too late. And anything that I'm saying is not about the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, because I, I didn't know this. I was lucky enough when I met my mentor, Dr. Sidney Baker, who is the grandfather of functional medicine, I was going through four years of infertility. And I changed my life. And it wasn't until I did the anti-inflammatory diet and got rid of my um, yeast and changed my lifestyle and got rid of my constipation that I got pregnant. Um, And and but I say to moms all the time, you know, thank God that happened to me. Thank God I was that way because I wouldn't have met Sid. And so now your child is 10. You can still do it. Start one step at a time. Get rid of the flavor enhancers and the red dyes and, you know, all the candy that's less from Halloween and 
and find other ways to reward our children with a trip out with dad or a fun time with mom or maybe even an extra TV show or video game every now and then. <laughs> uh, but the electronics are also, in my opinion, part of the problem. But, yep. uh, you know, and 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 start that anti-inflammatory diet and take that walk together after dinner. Um, or before dinner or first thing in the morning or whatever it is and reimagine the lifestyle. And even if you live in an apartment in New York City, which is very close to where I live, build that garden, that little box and, and get the kids in doing that. And all of those things and probably 50 other that I'm forgetting will help to strengthen their underlying immune systems. Then- yeah they get something they they you want to prevent this we have what we call an acute viral protocol and that's increasing the antioxidants you know we don't need all these antiviral medications and everything else sometimes we do but we need to be providing vitamin d you know 80% of children are are bereft of vitamin d 100% of children with pans and pandas have at the very best low normal vitamin d levels we may need to give vitamin a we may need to give zinc we may need to give antiviral amino acids like lysine um antiviral herbs things that help to support the immune system so that they don't get sicker and so that the immune system doesn't overreact. And if you're genetically predisposed, start this autoimmune process. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I look at this last two year cycle when kids didn't get sick at all and you're right now they're getting pounded because everybody's antibodies have disappeared for two years, not being exposed to anything. Everyone's getting sick constantly. And what I found over my 23-year career in pediatrics is that the vitamin D, the zinc, and the gut bacteria, the three biggest things dysfunctionally causing recurrent immune-related infections in kids. Um, and so chasing those things, the only caveat there that um, Sam Yannick taught me was that vitamin D in an autoimmune state uncontrolled could actually make more TGF beta worsening the TH17 response at the beginning. So that's the only caveat to putting vitamin D in somebody right away. Absolutely. In the absence of that, that is a, that is the, everybody should be on D frankly. I think that's just a simple, I want you to touch base. I, I'm segueing here uh, just because I, I know, cause you had such an intimate relationship with Dr. Baker and, and the work around parasites. Why are we still not there yet? I mean, here's an organism, <laughs> you know, I, I, I know, you know, that Dr. Parker calls it a macrobiome, right? Because they're bigger organisms. But why are we still so far behind the eight ball in understanding that there are good parasites in the world that we should be living symbiotically with? And they may be the bigger part of the reason we're struggling immunologically. What's wrong? What happened? Absolutely. And, and I think why we're not, first of all, is fear. That people hear paras parasites, they hear third world, yuck, you know, I call it the ick factor. Right. And when I talk about helminth therapy, I very purposely don't call them parasites. I call them mutualists. And that's more of a semantic right. to, to help people get over that ick factor than anything else. But as William Parker and Sid always taught me, it, it's about that macrobiome as well as the microbiome that is bereft of the plethora of germs. And it's not just about 
antibiotics and antibacterial soaps and wearing masks and living in lockdown. It's about using toilets and wearing shoes and living indoors in general. And I'm not telling everybody to stop using toilets and stop wearing shoes, but right. we need to regrow. Um, some of that is, is fiber. And we have lost so much fiber in our diet. Fiber has an intimate relationship with the microbiome. And there's some lovely articles on that. Um, but, uh, you know, when we were in hunter-gatherer society, we used to dry our grains in large vats rather than processing. And we used to eat grain beetles and grain beetle worm eggs. And I always joke that in my mother's cupboard, that's where you'd find all the grain beetles because things were expired for 20 years and they were still in her cupboard. Right. But, you know, that's OK. You know, she had a very healthy immune system and a very healthy gut. Um, but because we are living with such a, a bereft um, ecosystem within our guts, um, those parasites, those mutualists no longer exist there. And that's where the dirt comes in, you know, uh, and for me, that's where Hellman therapy comes in. And I do believe that the work that William Parker did and the work that several other researchers have done is very important because these mutualists, these Hymenolepis diminutus sister sarcoids. Um, don't ask me to spell that, but HDCs. Um, I had to practice for like a month to be able to even say it. But anyway, um, they do not take up residence within the gut. They're intraluminal. You take them and the immune system says, oh, yeah, I remember you. I, I want to act well. I want to induce immune tolerance. And it's the induction of that immune tolerance, meaning that allowing of the immune system to act the way it should, that is what makes these mutualists so important and so helpful. And then if you're not constipated and you're not on an immunosuppressive medication, and in my opinion, you're not nonverbal and already with gut issues, um, it is very, very safe. Um, and it travels through the GI tract without ever attaching and induces the immune tolerance and then gets excreted out. Right. And the worst that can happen is an infestation, which means the egg hatches before it is pooped out. And you treat that with one day of an antiparasitic um, and it goes away. It's a, it's a horrible thing as a parent. Um, and I'm not, I don't want that to ever happen to any other of my patients. When when William was doing his original research, we he had gotten to the first thousand children. And we were talking as, you know, he was getting that thousandth in. And we hadn't seen any negatives whatsoever. And the next day, my first child with an infestation that was very severe um, presented. And it was severe because the mom had increased the number of grain beetle worm eggs she was giving her child way beyond what should have been done. Her gastroenterologist had put him on an immune suppressive medication. He probably had slower gastric motility. He wasn't constipated, but you also have to do that charcoal or beet test. You know, how long does it take for that color to appear in your stool after you have it? Should be out of there within 12 hours. If it takes 48 hours, you've got really slow gastric motility and are probably blocked up in that pipe somewhere. He had that. 
And he was nonverbal and couldn't tell us that he had some cramping. And so as long as I keep those things in mind and keep those parameters out of it, these mutualists or HDCs can be a very effective way to reintroduce that immune tolerance, again, if done under a practitioner's guidance and, and done well. Yeah, I know Dr. Parker's going out, forming his own company. I'm looking forward to the day that they get the ability to start putting this out in the clinical space so we can actually use it and give it to patients. I'm very excited. I actually took a six-month run myself just to learn what it was like, oh, probably eight, nine years ago. And all my staff members used to laugh at me, oh, here's worm, here's worm eater or whatever. But, you know, some funny, funny comments. Well, I'll tell you a make. quick story. When I met my husband about 10 years ago, he had infl has inflammatory bowel disease and he was on five different medications, including steroids. And I said to him, I just want to add one thing. I will pay for it. I will will give it to you. And it's it's a little vial of water that yeah. you take once every three weeks, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. I said, I just want you to trust me. And um, he took it and within six months was off all medications, hasn't yeah. been on any since. And that, yeah. you know, it's used, it's in the research for IBD. And I, I don't understand why we're not using it more why well, we're not, not understanding enough, it more. not enough money in it that's why i mean yeah. it's so it's, it's so true. strange to it's so strange to be cynical but you know the reality is we we do so many things to human bodies that is painful dangerous and irritating and yet this is something that's simple and and has mechanistic probability mechanistic understanding uh data and we don't uh, yeah it's it's such yeah. a mess so I let me let me sort of summarize for the folks listening you know what the excellent advice you're giving so everyone if you have a child or you are pre-pregnant your preconception i mean any of these stages along the way diet is critical anti-inflammatory whole foods based minimally processed, high vegetable fruit, high fiber content, good quality meats. That's that's the hallmark. That's the biggest leg of the stool. Number two is avoiding toxins in every way, shape or form that you can. Number three is maintaining a good quality exercise regimen to make sure you're moving and keeping your bowels flowing, which is a big piece of movement, plus sweating, detoxification, all of that stuff is a big piece of it. Stress, I know is a big one. So staying minimally stressed, getting adequate sleep, and, and really just doing all the things that your body is meant to do according to nature, right? This is not stuff we're imposing upon humans now at, at the 25th hour. This is stuff that for thousands of years we've been doing. And oh, by the way, it worked for thousands of years. It's only now that we're changing this. So those are the sort of the news to use, as Jeffrey Bland always says, as to what <laughs> we want everyone to do. It doesn't need to be, you know, this miracle pill drug answer. It's basics, Right. So Nancy, let's now for the clinicians listening, let's take a case from beginning to end. You know, we don't have to go through the actual kid if you don't want to, but what are you doing? I know you're prescribing antibiotics if necessary for three, four weeks. You're doing labs. What labs are you drawing? We don't have to get into the, you know, zinc has to be, you know, 12 nanograms per ml. We don't have to do that, but just give us a tutorial through what does it look like from the, the mind of a top shelf functional medicine provider in the United States. Yep. So first of all, the most important biomarkers are history and physical exam. 
So if I have a history that there was a sudden onset of any of those things I mentioned earlier, OCD, tics, anxiety, et cetera, I am thinking about pans or pandas. And then I'm dating back and seeing what the trigger was. Did they have a virus? Did they have COVID? Did they have something else? If I can't figure it out, then I may put them on a general antibiotic till I get that blood work. But then I'm looking at in the in the history first, what are the biggest symptoms? Is everybody not sleeping? Well, I got to treat that first. Um, I got to get everybody sleeping because as you said, that's one of the hallmarks of the lifestyle of decreasing the inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. So first is history. Second is physical exam. And on the physical exam, I'm looking for a few things. I'm looking for the choreoform movements. So if a child is in a flare, and they stand in front of you with their feet together and their arms outstretched and their fingers outstretched and shut their eyes, they should be able to hold their fingers steady for 30 to 60 seconds. If they start playing the piano with their fingers or rolling their hands, supinating them, that again is pathognomonic for a basal ganglia inflammation. And I don't need anything further than that. I need to start treating them. So history, physical exam. I do a nutritional physical exam. So I'm looking for all kinds of other things too. I'm looking for keratosis, for evidence of essential fatty acid or, or zinc deficiency. I'm looking for white spots on the nails for zinc deficiency. I'm looking for sighing behaviors, twitching, for magnesium deficiency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm also looking for that deer in the headlights look. And we have a little boy we're going to see tomorrow that on his picture, you just see it. And and that's that adrenal stress, that that fight or flight. Um, so I'm looking for all of those things. And I'm also looking for overgrowth of something like yeast. So I may be looking for dandruff or or um, ringworm or tinea capitis um, or a positive woods lamp exam, that UV light that really lights up and shows tinea versicolor, et cetera. Um, and also looking for that in in the history. Then in that first visit, by that history and physical exam, I will say to the parents, you know, this is very likely pans or pandas and talk about what I think the, the triggers are. But then I will also that day do the blood work. And I usually do it right there in the office because anxiety is something these kids have a lot of and we happen to have a very good hold and we're pretty good at it. So, but just regular blood work. And I'm looking at strep titers, ASO and anti-DNA-SB. I'm looking at mycoplasma titers, IgM, IgG, sometimes IFA, immunofluorescent assay. In our neck of the woods, um, uh, for uh, most of the kids, Lyme is on our radar. And I particularly look for Borrelia, Bartonella, and Babesia. Bartonella, particularly if they're sore soles of the feet, blanching stretch marks, rage and anxiety, Babesia, if there's particularly night sweats or air hunger, um, as well as anxiety or, or OCD. Um, and I may do that test with the caveat that the regular testing of Borrelia, Bartonella and Babesia is often inaccurate and falsely negative. So if I suspect it, I may well in that case do a specialty test for it. 
Um, I may do viral titers and it depends on what the, the trigger may have been. I do not do titers for every virus under the sun because we're all exposed to them and usually you see multiple IgG titers. But if a child had a cold sore, I will certainly do herpes simplex, HHV6. If they had a mono-like illness, I will do EBV, CMV. I may do COVID antibodies, although we've had a lot of false negatives on, on that. So if I suspect that, if there was that exposure, I will just assume that. Those are the, the infectious ones. I always do because the first three kids that presented to me with autism had hepatitis, um, nephritis, and thyroiditis. I will always do liver and kidney function and thyroid function and thyroid antibodies because those are often elevated. I will also do other inflammatories, the inflammatory markers. The most commonly positive test is a 56% chance of a positive ANA in a nonspecific and, and mild uh, level. So 1 to 80, 1 to 320 of a nuclear diffuse ANA with a negative reflex panel. So no anti-DNAs or, or SS row law, et cetera. Um, I will also do a SED rate and a CRP. And then I will look at vitamin A, vitamin D, RBC zinc, RBC magnesium. And sometimes because a lot of these kids have trouble with um, uh, uh, detoxification, as you said earlier, I may look at an RBC selenium or molybdenum also. Um, I think, and, and then I may look at mitochondrial function. You know, the mitochondria are the most sensitive organelles of our body, and and they often are secondarily affected when a child has an infection or stress. And so they may have low carnitine, acylcarnitine levels, and treating that may help that. On physical exam, I may see low tone, W sitting. On history, I may see constipation. But mitochondrial dysfunction is any symptom in any organ at any age. So it may well be there and supporting the mitochondria naturally may be really important. So only if I'm, I really see something else on history or physical exam, will I get that mito those mitochondrial markers. Um, specialty testing, I will always ask about mold and if they've been in a water damaged building, if they've been in a musty building, um, either school or a, a church basement or their homes, I will look at urine mycotoxins. Um, there are a lot of blood tests in Neil Nathan's um, research, as well as Richie Shoemaker's, that I don't necessarily find effective in children, but that urine mycotoxin test um, can be very helpful. Um, and then uh, um, after I, I get that blood work at that first visit, I will treat them with a three-pronged approach, treating the symptoms, treating the trigger, which is the antibiotics or antimicrobials, and providing immune support. And I think as, as allopathic physicians, we all treat the symptoms. We usually start with SSRIs when they come in with anxiety or tics, maybe uh, an uh, alpha adrenergic, you know, uh, or beta blocker, you know, like clonidine or propranolol, but usually an SSRI. If as a physician, you're going to start there, I urge you to start very low and increase slowly. 
But I also urge you to look at the research on so many other functional medicine techniques. There are at least 17 studies on the benefits of N-acetylcysteine in treating OCD. There are a multitude of studies on magnesium, particularly threonate and glycinate in treating ticks. There are a multitude of studies on adaptogens like uh, ashwagandha and rhodiola in treating um, stress and anxiety. Um, so look at some of these uh, in treating the symptoms. And when I say treat the symptoms, treat the symptom that is most important to that child and family. If nobody's sleeping, talk about sleep hygiene, talk about melatonin, talk about passion flower or, or um, uh, chamomile or kava or multitude of, of different natural agents for helping a child and therefore the family to sleep. Then when I talk about treating the trigger, one of the antibiotics I usually start with is azithromycin. And I do for several reasons. One, in our area, strep is sensitive to it. You need to know your area because there are some areas where strep is resistant to azithromycin. Two, we have a lot of mycoplasma in our area and we have a lot of Bartonella. Azithromycin is good for all three. And most importantly, azithromycin has been shown through many studies to have immune modulating effects, anti-inflammatory effects. So you get that. The other one that does is clavulonate, um, you know, given often together with amoxicillin and augmentin. However, that has tremendous effects on the gut. Um, and especially if a child comes to me with gut dysbiosis or, you know, really I know their gut is not healthy, that's not an antibiotic I want to start with. If a child has a really un unhealthy gut, I may consider intramuscular bicillin. It's a long-acting penicillin that is very painful. And usually I only give it once, but if I know I need to treat the gut and I know I'm talking about strep or even Borrelia, I may start with intramuscular bicillin once. I, I can probably count on a, a dozen hands how many times I've done that, but it is one to consider. As a functional medicine physician who now has two naturopaths in my practice, I will also consider other antimicrobials because there's wonderful research on uh, golden seal, colloidal silver, oil of oregano, um, uh, eusnea, tega, which is a pine needle extract from the Siberian forest, neem, and many others. So I will consider those also. Um, as an allopathic physician and as somebody who's Parents often come to me um, not acutely. You know, I have a pretty long waiting list and they've been down this road a lot of times. I will usually start with azithromycin, ceftonir, or one of the top six antibiotics. And then after three to four weeks or after improvement, especially if it's azithromycin, start to wean it by one pill a week. So if they're on one pill a day, I do that for seven days, the first three to four weeks then six days a week, then five, down until they're one, which is a prophylactic dosage. If azithromycin didn't work, and I'm using, for example, ceftonir, I will get them on an antimicrobial rotation before I will start to wean the antibiotic. Because one of the things that, that I've seen again and again is that we can get these kids better, but if they get another infection, 
while they're still healing or without immune support, that second or third reinfection can cause an even worsening of the symptoms. Yeah. And then the third piece of that three-pronged approach, which I feel is most important, is providing the immune support. So we talked about diet and lifestyle. In the allopathic um, community, the immune support is ibuprofen, which I think is very helpful. And 10 milligrams per kilogram at the time of a flare, of a worsening of symptoms, can stop those symptoms in their track or at least decrease the frequency, the severity, or the intensity of that flare. And if it does so, then you really know you're dealing with an inflammatory reaction. The second in the allopathic grouping is steroids. And steroids is a short-term solution. Um, and almost always um, you will get some worsening. You may get a benefit with a short course of six days or a more prolonged course of a month, but especially if there's gut dysbiosis, you may see worsening. So again, I can count on probably one hand the number of times I've reverted to steroids. And then, but if a child has a positive improvement with steroids, that's an indication they may well improve with IVIG. IVIG is intravenous gamma globulin. It is very, very expensive. These days it is harder and harder to get, and it needs to be at autoimmune do dosing, which is 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram, not immunodeficiency dosing, which is 400 to 600 milligrams per kilogram. However, I really look at all the other ways to provide immune support. Flavonoids like quercetin, which we've seen a lot of in the COVID research. SPMs, which is specialized pro-resolving mediators, which again, we've seen a lot of in the COVID research, which has been very helpful. Curcumin, and it's important not, you know, I, I've been known as a brand snob, but that's because <laughs> these brands are important because all curcumin isn't created equal. It depends on the way it's produced, the bioavailability. Um, LDN, low-dose naltrexone, a lot of good research in the MS literature and the HIV literature. Um, naltrexone has been used in highest, higher doses in, as an anti-opiate, but in low doses, it can be very helpful as an anti-inflammatory in either topical, which sometimes I'll start with, or oral forms um, to treat inflammation. And there are many, many more. And we will use something. We don't want to overload the family with too many things, but three to five things at that first visit that get at the symptoms, treat the trigger, and then provide the immune support, plus talking to them about diet and lifestyle is usually where we are. And then we do a follow-up six weeks later to see, A, if we're right, <laughs> you know, um, if we, you know, like maybe we missed mycoplasma, maybe we didn't think that was it, um, or we missed Bartonella, um, and then B, to see how they're doing and continue that approach. And the last thing I want to say is that the most important instrument I have in my office is a tissue box. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that Sid said to me early on was, if you listen, they will come. Yep. And the thing that I urge allopathics to physicians to do, and I know it's so hard in a busy primary care, pediatric or family practice office, but maybe have a health coach or a nutritionist or, or, or a nurse that can spend a little bit longer, listen, 
because you learn so much and find out so much from these families, from these kids, you know, listen to the child. Um, and, and that will teach you and also help them to know that they're being heard and they're not being blamed for being bad parents. And the child isn't being blamed for thinking that the world is going to end or that, you know, that potato is contaminated or whatever it is. Um, and then one last thing also help the parents not to feed the beast. Um, and that's a little bit farther down the road, but a lot of times when you have an abrupt onset of a different kid in front of you, you want to coddle them. You want to, you want to say, oh, you don't have to take out the trash, honey. You're, you're dealing with that OCD. No, 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 no. You'll have a secondary anxious kid because you've been coddling them. Nope. They still have to take out the trash when, you know, and quite frankly, that first kid I told you about was my own son. Mm. And um, when he was having those ticks on the floor, um, I would pick him up off the floor and put him back in the chair. And I would say, nope, we're going to do this homework. And you're going to take out that trash. And, you know, watching him walk out that door, you know, it broke my heart. But, you know, now he's an adult getting his PhD and using all those tools and having a great diet and, you know, all those wonderful things that, you know, I learned about, but that I try to instill in these families yeah. because it's a marathon. Yeah. This so is not important. a quick fix. Yeah. So, so, anyway. so, 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 so important, you know, cause again, you think about immune solvency, stress chemistry loops, will just drive it in the wrong direction. So maintaining as best you can the most stress-free, which is impossible, but as close as you can get to limited stress, the better for immune solvency. And so I want to touch on a couple of the topics, I mean, a couple of the words you said, SPM, special, I mean, pro-resolving mediators, right? So DHA, EPA, Right. So that's our omega-3 fatty acids that we talk a ton about because they're so important to decrease inflammation in the brain. Um, N-acetylcysteine, precursor to glutathione, which is the most important chemical for detoxification in every cell of our body. NAC at 500 milligrams on an empty stomach once, twice a day is probably one of my favorite supplements to use in patients across the board. I mean, it's just so powerful. Absolutely. Um, the curcumin you use, Mariva, what you, you didn't, you didn't. Mariva is great. There's also one by Nutramedics that's called Avea, E-V-E-A, okay. um, that can be dosed 10 drops every hour okay. um, in acute situations. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cura Pro, Cura Fin, uh, mm-hmm. Curcumin Avail, uh, by designs for health. There's one that's in a starburst for starburst form. It's like a almost like a little candy that's yeah. not a great dose, but a great thing to give as your kid to as an, a reward. Right. Um, you know, in addition to other forms of curcumin you may give. Yeah, for sure. And then hypermobility. I have noticed, I don't know if it's me seeing it or me looking for it, or it's just becoming more frequent. Hypermobility seems to be on the rise. Is that true? Do we know? Um, I think our mitochondria, so, you know, I have 
maybe every fifth or sixth patient that comes into me and says they have Ehlers-Danlos um, and it gets overcalled. But I do think that mitochondrial dysfunction is on the rise and that is is a, a root cause of it and definitely seen in Ehlers-Danlos or, or any root cause of it. Four to seven percent of children with autism have mitochondrial disease, but up to 85 percent, depending on the study, have mitochondrial dysfunction. And in our practice, at least 60 to 65 percent of the children with PANS, PANDAS, basal ganglia and cephalitis from whatever cause have mitochondrial dysfunction. And so absolutely, because our mitochondria are taking such a hit, whether it be from acetaminophen we decrease glutathione, as you mentioned earlier, by 21% every time we give acetaminophen. And what do we give it for? When our kids are under stress with fevers, when they get a vaccine, we, we should be using ibuprofen as much as possible. What else de depletes the mitochondria? The things we give for autism, risperidone, the things we give for seizures, Depakote. And we don't think about reinforcing that mitochondria with carnitine or CoQ10 or mitochondrial supports through food, which is good proteins and amino acids. Um, and so I think they are taking much more of a hit these days than they were when we were kids. Yeah, and mitochondria is so important. I think that's of the next five years of my life, my deep dive is going to go deeper and deeper into the layers of the mitochondria because now that I've gone through all the immune work, mitochondria is the next big piece of the pie that I need to get a little deeper understanding on because it's like the engine of a car. It's constantly burning in the brain. 30% of your macronutrients are burned in that mitochondria. There are exactly. byproducts of that burn and those byproducts are cellularly damaging. And so if you're burning and not clearing, that's an absolute nightmare for every cell in your body, not just your brain. So I and really if any appreciate of your listens, if, if any of your listeners haven't, I highly recommend Bob Navio's work on the cell danger response. Right. Um, you know, and and one of the things he said, going back to that Hellman therapy, is that maybe one of the things that flip is that flips that switch while we're looking for that antipurinergic um, that may be so necessary in treating a lot of these chronic diseases like Lou Gehrig's and autism and chronic fatigue and on and on and on, you know, doing things that protect and support the immune system will also go to treating the cell danger response and the mitochondrial dysfunction. So it's all interrelated. Wow. They're, they're not separate. Let me tell you, every deep dive I do, I find that I peel the onion and feel less in, less educated because to your point, it's all tied together. And the one place yeah. I feel like an absolute like, like my brain is clearly not getting it is, is estrogen help to the <laughs> immune system. Holy cow. Someday I'm going to try and go into that space right now. I'm too scared. So I'm not heading down that world, but that would be it's one of the I... reasons I became a pediatrician. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love you know, it. Anyway, I love it. I, I love it. I cut off my new patients at 15. So, you know, they have to go to one of my naturopaths if, if uh, they get too much into that hormonal mess. Uh, I understand. But that's something one thing that you just said. And I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you, sure. you talked about peeling the onion. And so much of the time we talk about that with treating these kids. And although I agree with the analogy, I just wanted to say I, I, one of the analogies I give instead is seeing our kids as a gift wrapped in many layers of wrapping paper. 
And our job as clinicians and physicians is to unwrap all of those layers, but to never forget whether that child is wrapped in nine layers or get to the true gift inside that that child is a gift. And we're not fixing a problem. We're helping a child to reach their fullest potential. And so I just, that analogy reminded me of that. And I wanted to say it before I forgot. No, and I love that because, you know, when you think about all of these kids, right, and they, not a single child wants to be sick, not a single child wants to go through not being their perfect self. And I think that's the problem with diagnosing things, right? Giving a label, ADHD. Well, you know what? All that is, is just a name to the symptoms. Really, what we're trying to do is to get each child back to where their best optimal self is, right? And this is sort of the thing with deficiency states versus insufficiency states. I don't care about any of it. What is your optimal state based on your SNP, your genetics, your any of it? So yeah, exactly. totally true. Yeah. yeah and I, 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 for me, the peeling and onion analogy is more related to every time I go research any topic in any way, shape or form, I get less educated, even though I feel like I'm learning more. It just, it's just a, it's a crazy right. world. The deeper I go, the harder it gets, but it's exactly. fascinating. And makes so, you cry. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when my when my contacts are not in, that is totally correct. I love it. Too funny. All right, one last thing, and then I want to talk about your book and some other stuff. So EBV titers, right? So COVID clearly, long COVID, PACS, whatever we're calling it, is associated with EBV elevations in many many studies now. And I think what that's really showing, and I think this is the case with these disorders as well is that it's showing us that our TH1 system is non-functional. So the EBV titers are telling us that mono, the infection that we call Epstein-Barr virus, is not there per se actively. You had an acute infection a while ago, but oh, by the way, your antibody titers are super high because you're living in a, in a state of unresolved immune solvency. Does that make sense to you? Totally. And I would only add that we also see it with Lyme. And the only reason we don't see it in the the Quest LabCorp local hospital testing is because it's so inaccurate at baseline. So we've got good EBV panels, but I think any, it's all about that immune solvency, as you're saying, and we're just bringing up that poor TH1 response and seeing that with the chronic fatigue, EBV, CMV, seeing that with the, the chronic Lyme. And, and I belong to a group, um, ILADS, International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. And I think when it came to looking at COVID very, very early on and what to expect, that group was right on because that's what we were talking about. And that's what we were seeing. And I think it's, it's, bearing, you know, its gifts now in that that's what we're all learning from this experience we've had over the last couple of years. Yeah. So true. So true. Nancy, I could talk for five more hours, honestly, Um, but I need to be conscious of your time. I'm being selfish right now. I've already taken you past what you should be, but to that point, anybody who is interested in learning about the disorders of pans, pandas, you need to go online and purchase Demystifying Pans and Pandas by Dr. Nancy O'Hara. It is the book of all books on this topic. So please get out there, get it. Um, I know you've spent your entire career in this space and taking care of those beautiful packages and wrapping and making sure that they can be unwrapped to their fullest potential. And you've been a gift in this world. I know it. I've talked to many people and your name just rises to the top very quickly. So for all of your work, I appreciate that and everything you've done 
that I've been able to be a part of. I appreciate that as well. But one last question, and then I'll let thank you, you fill for in all any... that, by the way, Chris, and oh, and thank no. you for doing these podcasts. I I really enjoyed looking at so many of them. So if your listeners are listening to me for the first time with you, go back and look at a lot of the, the other ones. So oh, I anyway. appreciate that. I appreciate that. All right, final question. You're got you get a ticket, a golden ticket, and you get to hand it into Congress or the president, and you get to have one thing changed that will benefit something, someone, some population, what would you ask for? And I'll give you a chance to think about it. Mine is always the same. I would change school food. I think the fact that we feed our kids such garbage is it makes my skin crawl. And so that would be my ask. What would your ask be? Well, the first thing I thought of before you said that was to see each person as an individual. And I don't know if that's a government thing, but I think that's something that's gotten much worse in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And we as doctors, we as a government, we as a society are not seeing the person in front of us, whether it has to do with gender identity or pans pandas or political whatever we need to look at the child in front of us. And we are becoming so full of the standards. As, as physicians, we need to be able to look at that child and that family. And yes, we need some standards, but we need to be able to have that relationship. So uh, yours is much more practical than mine. Um, but I, I am my mother's child and I am Pollyanna in some degree. My father would say um, that that we need to look at all of the toxins in our food. Um, and so I'll take my father's side and say we need to to stop processing everything and get back to food, yeah. um, whether it be and in I, the school lunch programs or anywhere. Yeah, I think your first one's good, though, because fun functionally in allopathic medicine where I still sit, even with the functional integrative medicine side that I have, we protocolize way too much. Now in our clinic, we don't protocolize much of anything, but in my hospital setting, anywhere else that I am touching the big beast, it is not individualized to the child in front of me. And that is exceedingly frustrating. Right. Um, you know, understanding genetics and everything else and this, the mental side protocolizing is telling 5% of each side of that bell curve, you're automatically going to lose. And I'm not okay with that. And I agree with you. I think that is very well said and, and just beautiful. So yeah, to your point, your mom's side is a good one. I like it. Yeah. Well, I, both I, my more... parents were physicians and, and uh, you know, their generation, you know, they didn't have all these tests. They they had to go on the house calls. They had to see yeah. the person in front of them. And and uh, we need to get back to that. Yeah. I'm more linear like your dad, but I'm trying to gain my... <laughs> I've spent the last couple of years trying to find my um, more feminine side and, and stop being so so uh, masculine in my linear approach to everything. But uh, it is what it is. I Hey, so, so, so grateful for your time. Is there any place that our listeners... Um, that are here can follow you. Do you have a Twitter? Are you a Facebooker, an Instagrammer? I already spoke to the book, which I want everyone to get. So, so first, my website is drohara.com. 
And in addition to the book, I've also started a membership and mentorship program. So in the membership program, there are two to three minute videos to learn how to do the physical exam, to see some of the antibiotics, antimicrobials, nutraceuticals that I talked about, to look, we developed a flow chart that, you know, is in the book, but blacked out because I want you to take a deeper dive into it and look at all those things that we've talked about. And then the mentorship, which can be online, by phone, in person, whatever, because I need and want more practitioners to be able to to help these kids. Yeah. Um, I am on Instagram and Facebook, um, much to my chagrin, uh, but Instagram is NHOHara MD. And uh, you can look there and uh, uh Facebook is Dr. Nancy O'Hara. Um, so again, thank you, Chris. One last little plug, although I am plugging my own book. My colleague, Dr. Lindsay Well, also wrote a children's book um, that's also on Amazon for the families of kids that are suffering with this. And also, if you didn't understand a word I said, it's it's a way to start to to see it from a child and family's point of view. And maybe some of the other physicians listening might start there and then get my book. So anyway, amen. And you know what, folks, for all the clinicians listening, this is the place you want to start to learn this, because frankly, this is how we help kids. And I was actually writing a, a, uh, a thought today, and I was talking about gravity and how we all accept that gravity holds us on the ground and it's a strong force and it does what it does. And that acceptance is what allows us to live with it. But when we're in partnership with other humans, we have to also accept that we can't change gravity. We can't change them. Right. And so to your point, when we're in partnership with these children and their parents, we're not changing them. We're giving them the tools to be the best version of themselves. So I love that thought process for you. And I'll give you the last word. And they're changing us. Amen. Nancy, what a great time. So, so appreciate you coming on and talking and sharing all of your years of wisdom with us and just an absolute blessing for the for this country. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you, Chris. Really enjoyed it. So I'm not too sure how to sum up that interview. Just quite incredible. So much knowledge, so much information. And to not be aware of this disorder is to allow children to fall into the world of psychiatry that they might otherwise not need to be in and to avoid the need for what I call psychiatric pharmaceutical management that really isn't stopping the problem, the root cause, the analysis that needs to happen in order to rectify the problem so that the child is neurotypical or functioning at their optimal best. And as you heard, it's a complex process. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes willpower on the provider and the child and the parent to one, ferret out what's going on, two, find an appropriate treatment regimen, and three, follow through. It's, it's a process, but boy, what a beautiful ending if a child goes from having obsessive compulsive disorder, potentially even hallucinations, uh, motor tics and, and various different psychiatric and neurological problems to now be happy and and without any of these life-altering and disease-promoting issues. So this is the sum total of 
years of her work coming out in an hour-plus-long podcast for all of us to benefit from. And I'm so grateful for her time to give us all this information because awareness is huge, but also having the ability to now learn from a master and how to take the master's teachings and use them on a day-to-day basis with every child we see that is suffering under potential issues related to PANS, pediatric abrupt onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, PANDAS, whatever we call it, infectious onset basal ganglia encephalitis, fancy names for the brain's just not doing what it needs to do from an infection, and we need to help right the ship by going upstream to fix the problems. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Dr. O'Hara. As always, I appreciate everyone's time and effort. Please check her book out, Demystifying Pans and Pandas. Check out her website. And also, you know, if you do have some time, please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Give me an idea of which way I'm going as we keep expanding our topics and finding different experts around the country and the world to give us more information on how to be the best versions of ourselves. As always, hug those kids. Have a great day. And now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional. and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.